Welcome to the Be In Cyber podcast. Today we've got Keith Price talking to us about his career, going to talk about transitioning from the military, why he's an advocate or an ally of diversity in cyber. Let's get into that episode. So today we've got the wonderful Keith Price joining us on the Be In Cyber podcast. Um, Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself. Uh, 32 years in technology, uh, 22 years of that in security, uh, back before it was cyber, um, and it was CompuSec. So I'm quite old. I'll date myself there. <laughs> and I, I started out working in mainframes uh, in technology, oh, wow. so that dates me even further. Uh, and I also, I also used to know how to code in COBOL. So uh, everyone uh, who's listening can can continue to laugh at all that. But um, no, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, uh, moved around a lot. My dad was military and government guy, and I did the same thing as an adult. Um, I've got seven kids, I uh, live near Cambridge, and I'm currently the chief security officer for National Highways. Okay, thank you. So COBOL, wow. It, that was always... Yeah. Um, when I started out in recruitment, so similar time, it was always COBOL developers. And I'm, I'm right, I'm thinking some of the banks still have that technology, which is slowly dying out faster than anyone can replace them. I'm not sure of the banks, but in our world, in the US, it's the nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, and the IRS. Oh, wow. The, the top three employers for COBOL. And the people who do COBOL, uh, yeah, I don't want to be rude and say it's dying out, uh, but it is. <laughs> But, uh, you know, there's 75, 80 year old folks that still do it uh, full time and they're handsomely rewarded. So yes. anyone who's listening, who's a COBOL programmer, thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you. So you were military. You, well, you started your career military. You were military for a really long time. How did you yeah. sort of make that decision to leave the military? Because I know we, we have a couple of veterans that listen to the podcast that's, that are sort of thinking about that. The 20 years in the Air Force that I did active duty, it was a mixed bag. You know, it was a, a blessing and a curse. Uh, I got to work across, uh, I think the count was 27 countries in Europe, pretty much all of Europe, Middle East, uh, and then South Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. Uh, the problem was at the end of my career. Uh, so in the Air Force, you know, I first had the first Gulf War and we did some deployments and so forth. But over my whole 20 year period in the Air Force, we were always, quote unquote, at war. Mm. You know, we had a conflict somewhere and it just ground me down. It, uh, it, it, it destroyed a marriage, my first marriage, uh, the deployments to all the stands, you know, Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan and all these others. It was just it, it was too much. And so it, it was hard on my mental health. It was hard on my, me physically. It was hard on my family and my loved ones. And so I punched at 20 years and one month and three days. And there's a lot of people uh, like me that did that. Now, uh, some of the folks who aren't U.S. military affiliated, you know, especially like our British military folks, they're always amazed that we can retire or we used to be able to retire at 20 years and get a 50 percent pension, um, whereas they would typically have to do sort of 30, 40 years. Um, so there is a big difference there. Um, but, yeah, it's just tough. It was a tough yeah. life. Um, and 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 I had it pretty good. You know, I'll be honest, I was in technology and security and I also worked munitions and we worked in air conditioned environments. We had air conditioned tents and, you know, so we had it a lot better than most of the other branches of service. So 
I can only imagine how hard it is mm -hmm. for Marines and Army and even the Navy folks to do their 20 something years, uh, just times 10 what us Air Force folks had to go through. Yeah. Thank you for your service. It's um, it always amazes me that. I suppose the, the commitment that comes into that, because you don't think about the military families and the military spouses and, and the children that, that do just automatically get up to moved around as part of it. It is it is a whole family commitment. And I think that's why. You have, like you say, your dad went into the military. You have military families that, that do this service. Um, okay, so so you came out of the military. Was that a bit of a shock, that first civvy role for you? Was that because you kind of lose your band of brothers and sisters? Yeah, so we uh, I convinced my wife to move back to Virginia when I retired. So we went back there, and I went, I went to uni full-time, actually. Uh, so 38 years old, doing a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. And uh, but I was but after a year, I actually um, went back to work. And so I got a job full time as an IT, originally as an IT uh, supervisor at a hospital in Charlottesville. And it was kind of night shift. So kind of it kind of worked out OK in that I was working the night shift. I had a really good IT team. I was it was a very hands on role. So I got to go back to doing the hands-on stuff. And then also I got the opportunity to also do some data, you know, patient privacy, HIPAA related things uh, that we were trying to bring into the hospital. Um, and it, it was strange because I remember uh, I, I, in the military, you always came into work. You always came in for your shift sort of 15, 30 minutes early, right? So you could have a handover with the, the previous shift. You could have a cigarette or a coffee back in those days I smoked and you could ease yourself into the, but it, here uh, I showed up early and I got in trouble for showing up early to my shift because it says, Oh, you can't be here this early. Uh, you know, we're not covered for the liability. Should something happen to you? You know, you have to show up. So I thought that was very strange. Um, and then some of the other things that were different from the military time in this, in the private sector, um, but also the diversity uh, on the plus side, I now was starting to work with, more women, more people of color, more neurodiverse and disabled folks. Whereas in the military, everyone that I worked around pretty much looked and sounded like me, you know, white uh, male Keith. So that must have been a bit of a shock, but I suppose a positive shock, like you say. So how did you go from sort of healthcare, which is very, I suppose, a lot of people do go from defense into those highly regulated industries, but it must have been a bit chaotic well i don't know maybe the u.s healthcare is a bit better than the uk healthcare well uh, i wouldn't say better i mean i love the nhs uh it's one of the reasons that we decided to come back um was you know i was worried that some catastrophic medical thing would you know basically bankrupt my family but that's a separate subject we could talk another two hours on about but the healthcare industry itself was actually a lot similar to the military in that because of things like HIPAA and the, you know, the compliance frameworks and standards that we had in the healthcare industry, even back then in 2012, I think it was. So just the beginning of HIPAA and high tech it, uh, for a guy like me who was used to being a traditional cybersecurity in that. You know, I said no to a lot of things uh, because I had the black and white regulation to back me up. But at the same time, it kind of also continued to hinder me a little bit in that it didn't allow me early on to develop my business enablement uh, security approach, which 
uh, is very important now. And it's something that I've developed over the last, oh, geez, now six, seven years, uh, as opposed to the uh, security first, you know, confidentiality first approach. Yeah. So uh, that one year that I worked for that hospital did help me transition a little bit easier into the private sector as opposed to coming in to, say, you know, a, a revenue generating industry. Yeah. And then you went back to the Department of Defense, which was less military, but more DOD. Yeah. Yeah. So we realized, or I re uh, well, I realized after sort of two years in the States that it wasn't for, I didn't think it was for us, our family. Mm -hmm. And so I went to my wife sheepishly because I had convinced her to move to America. Uh, could we go back to Europe and the UK? And she says, I'm glad you said something because I've been wanting to for like the last year. Yeah. So uh, I took a job with the army as a civilian uh, civil servant, um, ran, uh, originally ran the help desk at Stuttgart, Germany for the United States Africa Command. And then I took a temporary promotion to run the network operations at Africa Command. And so we, it was, again, it was kind of more so back in the IT infrastructure space, but I had a couple of information assurance uh, professionals yeah. on my team. So it still got to interact with the cyber folks. And then I demoted myself uh, to get a job back here in the UK, where I spent three years working with the AFRICOM J2 folks, which is our military intelligence mm -hmm. at Molesworth. Uh, alongside the European uh, J2, uh, European Command and NATO Fusion Center. So got to go back more into the security space those last three years uh, before then punching out again out of the military space and now fully uh, devoting myself to uh, jumping into the private sector. Yeah. So from there, you went to Dark Matter. Now, they're a fascinating company. What was that like? Oh, what, my goodness. What, what yeah, do they so... do for anyone who doesn't know what Dark Matter does? Well, dark matter doesn't exist anymore mm -hmm. um, in the in the term dark matter. Um, they have a different name, and I won't say the name because I think anyone could figure find it out. But um, I was about to. So I had a year before I left the uh, the army and the DIA folks at Molesworth. Um, I started transitioning in that I was applying for jobs in the UK, private, fully private sector, and a lot of it was London based. Mm -hmm. And I, I went through about 60 interviews in that year, and it was mostly financial uh, industry, fintech and banks and things like that. And I'd get to the last interview in front of like the CEO or the CFO or whatever, and they'd say, man, we love your experience, you know, decades and decades of experience, but you got none in our industry. Sorry, we're going to go with another candidate. And so I ended up, yeah, well, I ended up actually taking a job back in Washington, D.C., as a contractor with the Department of State as like a CISO, a shadow CISO, so like a CISO advisor. And I was just about to sign the contract and go back to America and leave my family here in the UK because I was just going to go, uh, you know, temporarily when Dark Matter reached out and said, hey, we want, you know, our clients, the Emirates, they used to work with in your Air Force times, we they want you over here. And also some of the folks in Dark Matter that you worked with in the military and others, they want you here. Can you come help us build this cyber advisory practice? And I said, well, I've never worked consulting, but why not? Let's go. So I went over there to Dark Matter, worked for a year on the consulting side, working with uh, it was sort of the GRC side of the house. But I also had right next door the red teams, the blue teams, the architecture. We had everything in house and we got to work with a lot of cool clients doing a lot of cool things. 
And we built a lot of cool toys as well from the security domain. So that year and a bit, it was uh, it was an amazing experience, uh, made a lot of new friends. And again, the diversity mm. in Dark Matter was incredible. Uh, the 30-people team that I was most closely associated with, we had 17 nationalities. And again, it was sort of 50-50 men and women. So it just further expanded my uh, experience with diverse teams and, and again, made me realize that I never wanted to go back to a non-diverse environment. Yeah. So it's nice that you've experienced that. What would you say the benefits are for anybody who, who kind of looks around and just sees a lot of versions of themselves? What, I'll let you sell the benefits of a, of a diverse team. What, what, what did you see were the pluses of that? Oh, my goodness. So, the, again, the 20 years in the Air Force, um, it was almost like I didn't know what I didn't know. It did, I didn't know what I was missing. Uh, because we, ju we just weren't, um, yeah, I just wasn't um, exposed to it. So it's almost like it's almost like you're operating with like one eye and one ear. You can get by, and if you're always, if you were born that way, then you're ju you're you're just used to operating with one eye and one ear. And then all of a sudden, you get that second eye and second ear, and you get stereo vision and you get stereo sound. And it's just like that. It's a complete transformation. And also, the, the I think the biggest benefit of working with the diverse teams was working with younger people. So in the military, we did work with younger people. We, of course, we always had younger people coming in. But there wasn't as much impetus on allowing them to have a voice, as it were. Like, we had things that we did in a certain way that the military just did forever. And we kind of got stuck in our ways, you know, and if we did do anything different, it was from above down, you know, it was directed. Whereas with dark matter, I had people in their twenties saying, Hey, this is kind of dumb how we do it this way. Why don't we look at doing it this way? And so forth as an, as an example. And yeah. so again, it just opened my eyes to, Oh my goodness, this is amazing to be able to work with younger generations who are allowed to have that voice. Yeah. The military, to me, as an outsider, it seems to me that it would be very much top-down, hierarchical, you know, chain of commands is, is is the order that you're allowed to speak. Not so much speak, yes. but um, come up with ideas. Young, youngers, youngsters coming in may not feel like they can share ideas that they're just told what to do and directed until you get higher up and then you get more autonomy. So that must be very different of coming out. Yeah. And even, um, so more so in my civilian time with the army, I noticed that the female voice was always subdued or pushed down. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it'd be a room full of guys, um, you know, 10, 15 guys discussing something around a conference table and one woman, and she'd try to speak and people would speak over her or people would uh, poo-poo the ideas that she, you know, and, and, I, and I got very frustrated with that, if I'm honest. And in some cases, I would attempt to uh, say, well, hang on a minute, let's listen, you know, and then it be, and then it, it was like I was tarnished then. It was almost like, oh, you're a, you're an ally to women. So therefore you're against us. And it was like, what is going so? very frustrating so and i'm a man right so i have the privilege of not having to deal with that for 32 years yeah uh 
as as a woman, right? So now uh, I take it, you know, have I have four daughters, and I think I put the my daughters into those situations. Yeah. I think that you know, it just makes me very angry, you know, and hence why you know some of my LinkedIn content is what it is. Yeah, because I get I'm very protective, but also um, I'm still angry with the way things are going for women in our industry. We're going backwards and I just don't like it. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a problem that I think is starting to change, but going to always do more until we get to 50 50. Mm. It's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a problem that's solved, is it? And even though we've got to maintain that status quo, I mean, you just have to look around the world when we let things go. What happens? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get to 50-50, and it's not that I don't want it. It's, I think the reality is because cyber is such a technical field, um, it's just like women-dominated fields. I don't think we'll ever get to 50-50 yeah. in nursing or, you know, and I'm not being or sexist. I'm just or, saying that yeah. it's, it's women and men gravitate to these things. But what I would like is much higher representation, but not for the sake of it, it but because we make it a welcoming profession to women when they're like 12, 13 years old. Yeah. I want them girls to start thinking about cyber as a profession option. Uh, but we have to make it attractive to 12 year old uh, girls, you know, yeah. um, and we don't do a very good job of that right now. No, no. Hope. You can see with like the caps lock work, and I know you've been a mentor for caps lock for us as well. So you can yeah. see the amount of women that are coming in now who who have never thought that cyber was an option for them until later in their career. Yeah. So hopefully that message is starting to come through. There's, you know, we need younger people to be coming into the industry. We need career trainers. We need people to come in from all walks of life, and not just women. Yes. Like like you mentioned, people of color, uh, people with who are le less abled. Is that the right word? Well, so one of my one of my hiring strategies is to open up some part time roles to stay at home moms, disabled people, um, neurodiverse people, people who are carers for their loved ones, because um, quite often they can't do more than 20 hours. Yeah. Also, they need to be able to have the flexibility to do the work whenever and wherever they want to or can. And so those part time roles are very important to a couple sub-sectors of society that don't really have those opportunities. And cyber is a perfect career for those types of folks. We've seen them in Caps Lock yeah. and we've seen them in other places. And when I, I, I put out a job, I think it was with Little Fish. I put out a part-time role, 20 hours a week, and I had 500 applicants. Wow. And I know we always talk about, oh my gosh, it's insane how many applicants. And in this case, easily 300 were good, like good candidates. Mm. Like, you know, they, they met 50% or more of the requirements they were. And so if there's 300 people looking for one job like that, why can't we do better as an industry and offer more of those positions? Because it also makes sense from a business perspective, yeah. right? So you're, you know, you're paying folks um, by the hour and it's good money still, yeah. but you know, when you look at things from the CFO perspective, they really like those part-time employees that are on contracts like that, because from their perspective, it looks great to the to the bottom line. And for me, it gives me as a cyber leader more flexibility again to hire in diverse teams. Yeah, I think it is an important hiring strategy, and like you say. The good thing with flexible hours like that is if you have people off sick, you have a flexible workforce that 
may potentially mm -hmm. be able to increase um, their hours. Mm -hmm. And we know, uh, I know, I know, we we both sing from the same hymn sheet with the rants of junior roles in cybersecurity, but you need two years experience. Like, how do you get that experience? Mm -hmm. You know, part time experience counts towards that. And if we're not training the next generation flexibly, like I. I I'm sure you, with your children as well, I've got nieces and nephews that are coming up to 18. They do not want to work 40-hour weeks. They think that's, like, absolutely dumb as hell. They want to work part-time. Yeah. They they want to have a life. They It's not just working yeah. parents who want this flexibility. The next generation are looking at what the way that we're working and thinking, screw that, I'll do it my own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I did a work experience, um, family, well, I count him as a nephew, really. Yeah. You know, we've been family friends that long. And he asked, uh, could I do a school work experience with you? And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but let me, yeah, definitely. So he came over for that that week and we were doing hack the box and we were doing all. And he even said, you know, oh, so tell me about your, you know, day. And I said, well, you can see it because you're going to, you know, he literally sat behind me at the other computer while we worked together. And he was, in, he, again, he said the same thing, you know can I get a job in cyber where I'm not doing 40, 60, you know, 70 hour work weeks? And I says, yeah, of course you can. Uh, they're harder to, harder find, to find, but I think, hmm. I think in four or five years, when you join the workforce, there will be more of them. Um, and I think COVID really, you know, the work from home, uh, the hybrid working models now the, that are very popular, the flexible working models and so forth. Uh, they're here to stay. You know, it's a way that companies, so look at national highways, our compensation is not that great. So we have to think of other creative ways to entice talent. One of those ways is the hybrid working model and on the flexible working model, because people are very attracted to that. And if they want to go to the office, they can, you know, if they want to work from a restaurant or a park, they can. And if they want to stay home in their gym jammies than they can yeah I think I think that's a really important thing to think of when when businesses are hiring when you look at public sector uh, or you look at NHS or you look at education for example like the universities I used to have a university client their salaries mm -hmm. were lower than um, corporate shall we say or definitely lower than contracting mm -hmm. but the benefits when you look at like full maternity pay and uh, crazy amounts of holidays and those flexible working that's that's how businesses can make themselves more attractive to hire, especially if they can't pay the ridiculous salaries that sometimes we see. Yeah. You know, you're never going to be able to compete with financial services salaries and financial services bonuses. But actually, not everybody wants that. It's not about money for everybody. Yeah. And uh, we talk about financial services. As I said earlier, I was trying very hard to get into that industry. And now, as I've learned, it's probably best that I did not. <laughs> Uh, because someone like myself, who is very family minded and very separation of work and home life, uh, I don't think I would have been very successful. And in fact, uh, part of the reason Deloitte said goodbye to me, I think, although it was never indicated, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was not um, a director who was willing to work 60, 80 hour weeks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then another strategy that I found that works very well with young people is if we bring them into saying, bring them into national highways in one role. And then I say in six months or to a year, we could put you in another place in national highways doing something different. Yeah. 
and it, and it might not even be cyber. You may look at the uh, digital services department in, in IT and say, I want to go work for that those people because they are doing some really cool stuff. Or I want to go work in the center of excellence because they're doing stuff with autonomous uh, AI. You know, and so I can say to a candidate, come work for me. Uh, and if you're not working for me in cyber, you're working for national highways. And so there's opportunities there that you could come in and move around. Um, and that's even better for national highways because now you're getting this diversity of thought uh, spread out across all the divisions within the organization. And you're retaining the knowledge because actually when somebody leaves, right. you're not just losing the person, you're, you're losing that knowledge. Yeah. And again, that's another important, you know, when we talk about hiring entry level people, um, almost every CISO you ever talk to will say, I would love to hire blank canvases and people with no skills and no training. And the reality is there's a lot of roles that when you hire them in, they need to start, they need to hit the ground running straight away doing that job. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit naive of me to say, I just want to hire people with no experience and, and develop them, but we should be able to do that still. Um, if possible, there are some small teams. It's just not possible. And I know CISOs that run those smaller teams and they go, I would love to do that. I just can't. Um, and so we have to be realistic and we have to also be a little bit more uh, understanding of those uh, leaders who, again, they would love to do it. They just can't. Yeah. What you can do, though, once you have teams in place is bring somebody in part time to shadow and learn and develop. And you also, yes. if you have a team of, say, 60 people, not everybody can be a team leader. Not everybody can be a manager. But some people might want that. And actually, by giving them the opportunity to mentor and shadow juniors, you're creating your next generation of managers. So there are things that you can do, but it's hard and you've got to want to do it. You've got to have the headcount and the budget and the time, but there are things you can do. Yeah, and that's one of the things we don't do well is develop our future leaders because it's almost like we take individual contributors on a Friday and then on a Monday say, congratulations, you're a CISO today. Yeah. Now you're going to be leading and supervising and managing a team of 20 or whatever. So we're not very good at mentoring and developing uh, that supervisory talent, but also at the same time, we're not very good at giving people who don't want to do those supervisory management things, a career path towards individual contributor, you know, senior architect or senior Principal, engineer, yeah. because we, 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 we say, well, if you're going to get, if you're going to go up the, the, the ladder, you're going to go up, uh, you know, in the, in the organization, it's just expected that you will eventually be a leader, a manager, a supervisor. And we shouldn't force that because what happens then is those people with 20, 30 years experience as architects, they go off to Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and all that where they can do those jobs quite happily. So again, we have to be careful and I think do a little bit better jobs of developing people into what they want, not necessarily what we see uh, their their development being 100% you know we interview people for brand new positions but how often do we actually check in with them that yes this is what they wanted those needs haven't changed um like you say everybody's individual every, every path is individual we can't just mm. treat everybody exactly the same and expect them to have the same wants and needs you know something might happen in your personal life which suddenly means actually no I need to take a step back and be more at home for my family so I don't want to take a role that's going to be traveling all the time or 
international travel, for example, whereas 12 months ago, that might be something that that person wanted. So again, mm-hmm. it's 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 that those regular check-ins. It sounds like you're doing a great job of that national highways. So we've tra- we've we've jumped around a little bit. Obviously, you've worked consultancy, you've worked contract. Tell me a little bit about the benefits of contracting and and how you found that and the benefits of consultancy and, and sort of what 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 makes you tick now. What, what are you really enjoying? I mean, yeah, that's so the contracting. <laughs> No, yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, the contracting thing. So I started my limited company in 2018 and it was originally to do side gigs, mm-hmm. you know. So an example of a side gig is the Kia dealership down the road. Uh, I just happened to talk to the manager and he said, oh, yeah, we were told by head office that we have to have a a, a, a cyber assessment done. And I don't even know where to start. And I said, oh, I'll do it. for. I can come in on a Saturday and, and a Sunday and do it for you. Oh, okay. And that's how that started. So I was doing these side gigs of just doing assessments or, or even just hardening their, you know, the server HP server that they had under the desk. Yeah. You know, so just doing that kind of stuff uh, on a day rate. And then um, when Deloitte fired me, and then shortly thereafter, Little Fish fired me, uh, I said to myself, you know, maybe uh, the corporate environments aren't for you. Do they get consulting uh, let's just, then? What's that? Do you think it was consulting or do you think it was corporates? Because there's there's two consultancies, I suppose. Well, Deloitte, I was internal security. Okay. And, and what happened? I'll be honest. I'm not really sure what happened there because I thought I was doing the Lord's work and everything. And I was getting great feedback. But I just don't. I mean, something something wasn't clicking. And, and um, you know, they got rid. I It was just a case of I thanks for the it. opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't a fit. And then Little Fish, um, it just wasn't a fit either, you know, for both of us. So um, I decided it wasn't really consulting. I think it was just two things that were back to back that weren't right for each other. So I said, you know, I'm just going to go work for kind of work for myself full time. And that's why um, I went out there, put the feelers out. Um, the recruiting company in Guildford kind of caught on and says, hey, we've got a you know, the thing. Um, and then, and then my friend, uh, at Mandy and said, Hey, uh, I see you're on the market. Why don't you, you know, I'm going to tell them to hire you, you know, to come in and do build this thing, build this function and vision. And so that was great because I was the head of InfoSec. And for a long, long time, I was a one man security team, you know? And so I got to dust off parts of my brain that I hadn't used in a long time, hands-on stuff. So my typical day would be half the day would be engineering, architecture, hands-on. We were moving into Azure E5. So I was deprecating a lot of the other security tools. I was working with Rapid7 and Checkpoint and Microsoft and other security partners as like an MSSP manager, you know, supplier. I was working with the business more widely. And then I was building the cyber culture and awareness program, like a grassroots thing. Wow. And the other half of the day was the that's just part strategy. of the day <laughs> yeah yeah so you were using them the 24 hours the <laughs> but the best part was you know they don't want most companies don't want their contractors sitting in meetings all day they want them doing stuff so i would be in two meetings a week and they were my meetings so it was great i was actually getting so much done for the first time in many many years and, you know, the day rate was amazing. It was outside IR35, which um, most people will know about. So, um, yeah, it was it was amazing two years and two months. But um, 
there was the stress of, you know, contracts were three month periods. And so my wife was stressing, are they going to renew you? Are they going to renew you? And then, you know, a week before we're going to renew you, you know? Um, in fact, I think I was the longest serving contract. Yeah. It always amazes me. It always amazes me when businesses hire contractors that they don't think that, you know, you don't give a shit about that. Cause obviously you want to know that you're going to be extending. You need to know before a week before, else you're constantly on the lookout for your next gig. Well, and I was, yeah. I mean, as a contractor, I had daily, um, well, you can look at my LinkedIn and see I was bashing, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, really 80K CISO. Yeah, that, that's, you're going to get a great CISO for that. So uh, you'll notice that's dropped off in the last four weeks because I've got a job, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, if you do a year contract, you could still put in a five, 10 day notice period on the contract, you know. So as a business, you could still protect your ability to end a bad contract. But if you give someone a year contract, then they're like, ah, you know, they yeah. can settle in. But here's the thing. You give me a three month contract. Guess what? My rates go up every three months. So it's actually better for me. Um, so for them, they're like, really? Your rate, your rate's going up again? I'm like, listen. Have you seen the market? You give me months, <laughs> you've locked in that rate for 12 months. The risk is on me now. And so it's going to go up a little bit more every three months. So, um, yeah, there's pros and cons to it. The, obviously, I didn't have any paid holiday. I didn't have any benefits whatsoever. But the money the money is amazing. Uh, Till the now, tax bill. In, yeah. Well, you know, you know I'd, I'd rather pay corporate tax and dividend tax than PAYE, but also I want to pay my fair share of tax too, because I want it to go to the NHS. I want it to go to education and things like that. Obviously we can't choose where our tax money goes, but you know, I still, I still want to be a responsible citizen and pay my fair share. Right. So now I'm on PAYE again, I get those benefits and everything. So it's a trade-off. It is, it is. I mean, what have you found? Obviously, there is the pay and the holidays, which are very important to anybody in a permanent role. Do you find, like you say, when you were in, when you were a contractor, you were in less meetings, you were able to actually do the job? Do you think that's how we treat contractors and permits? Do you think that's a perk or what have been the big difference? Yeah, the, the, but, the, but the one thing that I suffered from was... Um, less um influence as a contractor so because you know um and it's just an example was um i had to build my team creatively with dotted lines so i had a couple people at envision that had already done some security stuff on their own back and so i said okay uh we're gonna work together and we did stuff together and you know i put them as alternates on all my programs and things and was doing some training. And, and then also I found some other people that were affiliated, like in the ISO 27,001 world, you know, which is very important. So I, I dotted lined into that person. And, and so when I left, we, we brought on a permanent head of InfoSec and then that permanent head of InfoSec was able to go these, let me do the count here, four people that Keith's developed, let's bring them into InfoSec. And they did. Because he had the influence as the permanent head of InfoSec to say, they're already developed. They want to come here. They don't want to do anything else. They want to be part of the InfoSec team. Let's make it happen or we'll lose them. 
And so the business said, yeah, that makes sense. You know, And it's great because they already know the inner workings of the business. They know the products. They know, you know, the, the politics. They know the different divisions. Yeah. So, yes, you're training yeah. them on cyber, but you're not having to train them on those things as well. So, no, that's a great strategy. Um, and I suppose sometimes the IT roles are entry-level roles. They can be entry-level roles for the business easier than entry-level roles into cyber. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, one example, we had someone who was who had resigned from the business and me and Peter, the new head of InfoSec, we said, oh, let's go. Let's go grab her and see if she'll stay. And 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 he said, would you stay and come to InfoSec? And she says, oh, yes, yes. So we saved her from resigning. We brought her over. She was a senior person in I.T. And so what happened was then the I.T. director was able to promote within and reward the people that earned it now there's a free space at the top and everybody gets a promotion and gets training and developed into these new roles and now there's a free entry-level position again for them to hire in and backfill right so it's almost like it's almost like everybody won i mean we got a great resource from it but she was going anyways yeah the other thing is that person's already got the um relationships within the business to be a security company. Yeah. 15 years worth. Wow. Yeah, no, that's so, a great yeah, story. An amazing save. And now we just need to do that. And 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 there were some others too that I think were dissatisfied with what was going on uh, with their career there. And again, brought them in. Peter brought them in. And I think saved, again, decades of knowledge and experience and also enabled that hiring and the promotion and everything within which is just a positive domino effect. Yeah, it's great. So we'll get on to our final question because I know we both like to talk and you've got so many great stories to tell. Um, has there been either a piece of advice in your career that is sort of stuck with you? Or if you prefer to answer this one, what advice would you give to either your younger self or somebody who's starting out now in cyber or wants to start a career in cyber? Uh, so the best piece of advice has actually got nothing to do with the cyber, but it's about sort of life. And um, it was about it was around financial security. So I had a, I had a an NCO, a non-commissioned officer in the Air Force. When I was 18, he says, look, uh, I'm going to send you to financial management training, which was usually reserved for the guys and gals who were terrible with their finances. But he says, look, I send everybody to that, all my new troops, because I want them to get smart with money. And that was all about saving for a pension early and having a rainy day war chest fund, you know, should the worst happen and stuff. So I would say to people as early as possible, and I know pensions to a 20 something year old is ridiculous when they've got bills to pay and all. I get that. If you can <laughs> try and contribute something to a pension early because it actually comes off better. And then also have it have that six month war chest. Should you want to leave a crappy job, you can leave knowing you've got the money to pay the bills. Or should you be made redundant, there's far less stress knowing you have six months worth of it. And again, it's rich for a guy like me to say, well, you should be able to. It took me two years to save that war chest. So it takes a while to save that yeah. money. The other, uh, what was the second part? The second question was advice to somebody who's starting out. Ah, yes. So in cyber, right? So I did two degrees in cyber. And for me, it was a way because I knew to get to the executive, I had to have some degrees. You know, mm -hmm. um, my my one piece of advice is when you get to a certain point in your career in cybersecurity or IT or actually whatever it is, 
when you get to a point where you feel you're good with pretty much all those skills in that profession, or you, you pretty much got it sorted. For me, that was like around 20 years. Look at doing things other than that professional development. So for me, I wish I'd have done an MBA instead of a mm -hmm. master's in cyber, as an example. I did eventually get CFO mentors and I started developing my leadership skills away, you know, things that were not cyber, um, how to talk to the business again, because you go into a boardroom and you're like, we got 680 million vulnerabilities and blah. And the boardroom's like, what is this guy even talking about? Right. Yeah. So learning how to, so develop those skills at some point in your career. Don't just stay with what's safe, you know, don't chase that cyber cert, you know, uh, I think the last one I got was CISP. I was going to say CISP, yeah. Yeah, now I'm more looking at the business skills and the people skills and the leader, you know, um, and I have a lot of experience in the leadership, but there's always more to learn. And for me, oh, money, budgeting. I would say yeah. learn how to budget and do accounting. That's a huge skill that you're going to need to have as the leader of a, you know, cyber department, even if it doesn't matter which side you're on consulting or internal. Yeah. I suppose it is really important because when you get given your, I don't know, hopefully a million pound budget, that sounds a lot, but actually when you run down all your different operating costs of your team, even if you're not, you know, C-suite, you get given budget management, profit and loss and things like that as a manager. Is that right? Usually. Yeah, yeah, usually. And even if you're not, even if you're not holding the purse strings, you will probably be responsible for utilization. You know, yeah. so um, not just making sure everyone's utilized appropriately, but where those resources should be prioritized. And it might not always be towards the greatest ROI at the time. Uh, so you ha again, a lot of these things, they come with experience, but knowing what things like EBITDA mean are also yeah. very important because when you're in the exco or the boardroom and these jargon is being thrown around you want to be able to know what people are talking about otherwise it's like the charlie brown cartoon wah 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 wah, wah. you don't yeah. want to be the person hearing wah 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 <laughs> i suppose it's the same if we throw our own acronyms around in terms of oh, yeah. risk and vulnerabilities or, you know, diff different acronyms that the board doesn't necessarily care. Well, they do care about, but they don't know why they should care. Yeah, exactly. And we're, we are terrible at that, too. So being able to translate those terms. Um, and, and again, it's not just the board, too, that we're terrible at. When I say earlier, you know, 12, 13 year olds, um, they don't want, you know, we look at what cyber training is available for them right now. And it's the same training that we give 25 year olds. Yeah. So 12 year olds, they want a Bill Nye, the science guy or a Taylor Swift delivering the cyber training. And you yeah. can't say cyber, you know, uh, yeah. you have to, you have to use terms and uh, make it fun uh, for that 12 year old. So your, your audience tailor your communication style to your audience. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. That 45 minutes has just absolutely flown by. I hope you've enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Please have me back because we got <laughs> so much more to talk about. You know you know we do. And um, But I look forward to hearing this and all the other podcasts you're doing. Congratulations on the new role. It's amazing. Uh, I've, I love the, the company that you're with now. So um, looking forward to seeing all the amazing things that, that, that you're going to do there, Rosie. Oh, thank you so much.
that was the wonderful Keith Price talking to us on the Be and Cyber podcast. Hey, if you've enjoyed the episode, please do share it with your friends. And if you've got a story to tell or somebody that you'd like to hear from, do reach out to me. Have a great week.